Hey listeners, are you working on your email and SMS marketing strategy and not getting the results you're looking for? Or do you wish you had a little more time and a lot more resources? Don't worry, Strategy Maven has your back. Building a successful strategy is no easy task, but their mavens or experts will help you establish an email and SMS marketing program that will attract, engage, and retain customers to help grow your brand. SMA is a perfect partner for you if you're not getting the results you're looking for, or your overall email attributed revenue is less than 30%, or you have way too much on your plate and not enough resources, or you started with another agency or freelancer and they dropped the ball. Strategy Maven Agency treats your brand as if it was their own. They provide the expertise and support your business needs to scale and thrive. Visit strategymavenagency.com to get started with a free consultation and don't forget to mention Startup CPG. So just prefacing this by kind of like a the most broad overview of food service, just to get everyone thinking about the size of the opportunity. The way that I like to think about food service is it's everywhere you go to eat outside the home from the moment that you're born until the moment you die. Welcome everyone to the Startup CPG podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Scharf. Today's guest is Jenna Cameron, who is my go-to expert on food service sales for emerging brands. I had the pleasure of working with Jenna at Just Egg years ago, and I'm so excited that she's joining us to share the A to Z for launching into food service. This episode is an absolute goldmine for any brand considering food service. You're gonna learn all of the key steps, the most important considerations, benefit from her lessons learned along the way, and hear about a bunch of great partners who can help you on your journey. Because there's so much stuff to cover, we've separated this into two episodes. So be sure to check out both volumes to get the whole story. Enjoy. All right. Welcome to the Startup CPG podcast. In today's episode, we're joined by Jenna Cameron, a super accomplished sales pro with a really diverse background building food service sales in the startup space. Jenna's held key roles in companies like Alpha Foods, Wild Earth, just where I also actually got to work with her and currently is the sales lead at Simulate. Jenna is a super pro driving growth for plant-based brands in the food service area and my personal go-to expert for pretty much everything food service related. We are really lucky to have her on the podcast today. I'm really excited to go through her journey, talk about her experiences and mainly lay out a roadmap for companies that are interested in getting into the food service space. So Jenna, thank you so much for joining us today. Really excited to have you here. Thank you so much, Daniel. I'm super excited to be here as well. And yeah, I hope anything that I say today is helpful for young brands trying to get into food service. It will be. I know that. I've heard all of your content before. And I just thank you for being so generous with like the career of knowledge that you've built up. I personally learn so much every time and I'm taking notes. So really excited to get into it. So I thought maybe just to start, can you let everybody who doesn't know you know a little bit more about your background? How'd you start? How'd you get to where you are? What have you been up to? Yeah, absolutely. So like you mentioned, you and I crossed paths at Just. I think we worked together for what, like four years or something like that. But I've been in the startup space for the past 10 years now, and mostly in food service. I actually joined Just, formerly Hampton Creek in 2013 when I was in Minnesota, which is where I'm from, and started with the company as a brand ambassador. It was my first 
corporate job out of college. I was just learning as I went. So I started as a brand ambassador and then moved to San Francisco to work for them full time and slowly had the opportunity to do kind of everything and anything startup related. And for those of you who don't know, Just, they make delicious plant-based eggs. They've also previously made um, plant-based mayo and cookies and cookie dough. All their products are amazing and created by Michelin star chefs. So when I moved to SF and was working as a brand ambassador, I then was managing our team of brand ambassadors back in like 2014. Let's just call them Creekers. So we had a great team of brand ambassadors, was doing that for a little bit, and then had the opportunity to jump into food service sales after being in production for about six months. And that was when we launched with Compass Group. And Compass Group is one of the biggest food service contract management companies in the whole world. They serve billions of meals every year and they service stadiums, college campuses, corporate cafeterias, you name it. So jumped into food service in 2015 and was one of the first food service employees at Just. And through that journey, I was able to build relationships with colleges and universities, our first restaurant chain partners, distributors, and really learn food service from the ground up. Ended up being at Just for about six years and was with the company from Series A to you know Series D, 20 employees to 200 employees, just crazy amounts of growth within that six years. Yes. You learn everything because when I got there, I was so impressed by how much you knew about the channel. You knew buy right distributor who was there, who was good. You knew how to hustle and make all the contacts. How did you learn all of that? Were there people there who were mentoring you or were you totally self-taught, just like out there figuring it out for yourself? What was that like? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, throughout my journey, I would say I was helped a lot by our customers. I ended up making good friends with tons of my customers. We're still friends to this day. I'm mostly in college, university and K through 12. And a lot of those folks who've been in that business for a long time really helped me learn the ropes of food service and kind of tell me like what to do and what not to do. So a lot of it was just learning as you go. But I did develop mentors along the way. And like I said, I'm still friends with them to this day. But yeah. Not to get ahead of us too much, but how did you become friends with them? Because that's always my main goal for retail is just try to get to know buyers and distributors and become friends with them and see them at trade shows and hopefully build trust. But is it just very similar for that for food service? Yeah, it's super similar. I would say at the end of the day, food service is all about building relationships. And you can do that in a number of different ways. Like you said, trade shows. Uh, at Hampton Creek specifically, we did lots of office visits and tours. So I was able to establish a great Bay Area foothold. Specifically, I'm thinking about Jason Hall at Marine Country Day School. Still talk to him all the time. Or my literally first college university customer, UC Berkeley. I remember in 2014, I was doing operations and food service sales at the same time. So we received the purchase order from UC Berkeley. I then fulfilled it within our system and like helped route it on the trucks and then went to go see it on campus with like a college of the next week. So, you know, start up life. Start That's up how life. I do it. Yeah, but I've known them now for like 10 years. So, you know. <laughs> well, that's amazing. And I mean, for anybody who doesn't know Jenna, you can probably tell just Jenna has an amazingly warm, friendly personality. And I think just, you know, I can see naturally why buyers and food service people would love to get to know you. I'm sure that helps a lot. But I also know you to be just one of the most absolute hustlers out there. Like I've seen your spreadsheets of follow ups. And I know you just absolutely are persistent while being extremely passionate as well. So I'm sure all of that helped you make a lot of those friendships in the early days. So after, while we were just, I remember you were also the chief dog scratcher. You were at least my dog's favorite uh, dog 
scratcher. I think, now what was your secret to being so good at scratching dogs? It's honestly really simple. My nails grow like crazy. I've always had very naturally long nails and dogs love them. All right. (laughs) Very well. So (laughs) well-rounded. Okay. So what was your journey like when you left Just? Yeah. So like I said, I was with Just for a little over six years. In 2019, I decided to make a leap and jump into something totally new out of my comfort zone. So when I left Just, I went to work for a high-protein plant-based dog food company called Wild Earth. And they're actually a Shark Tank brand. So they went on Shark Tank. They did the hustle. They got investment from Mark Cuban and then started expanding from there. Their product's amazing. They do high-protein dog food, like I said, a variety of treats. They've got flavors out now. And Wild Earth was a completely different journey, not in food service, I will say. I did retail. I did pet retail sales, independent pet, online. I learned a ton. I launched this in India. I worked with Amazon.com and Chew.com. So basically, it was like learning everything that I had learned on the street in IRL and taking it online. So that was a really good opportunity for me to learn direct-to-consumer subscription models, you know, ROAS and all that stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I bet that also helps you when you get back to food service to have a good understanding of retail. 100%. Where I'm at now, and I know we're jumping ahead a little bit, but where I'm at now with Simulate, I do all food service. But because we're, you know, a younger startup, I've also been able to do about 20 to 25% retail. And my experience at Wilder definitely translates to that. To that. Like, for example, I just launched this in Aldi, one of my favorite retailers, with a mixed case of our spicy and dino nugs, working with Publix. So yeah, it was absolutely helpful to learn retail and not only retail, but D2C. So like a lot of brands now have D2C options on their website. So yeah. And I wondered because we'll go into it, but in food service. Some of the food service customers are often retailers, right? So like the Whole Foods Deli, that kind of stuff. Do you ever see benefits there because you can do both? Like you're talking to Publix and then you ask for an intro to the deli buyer or something like that? Yeah, 100%. I think it's definitely translation. I remember at Just Even, I would attend some of the retail meetings and go to Whole Foods with the retail team and then present the food service SKUs. But if you're able to maintain those connections, especially as a young brand, and kind of dabble in both retail and food service. Grocerant is a great example. You know, Whole Foods, they have the deli, the grab-and-go sandwiches, the prepared salads, that all falls under food service. So yeah, it definitely helps to have connections in, in both spaces. All right. Okay. So now getting back to the timeline. So then you were at Wild Earth and focused more on retail stuff. And then what was next? So after my journey with Wild Earth, which, you know, again, I learned so much Oh, and I spent a ton of time with dogs there too. So that was amazing. We always had like adoptable dogs in the office and things like that and would do events at pet stores with dogs everywhere. But after Wild Earth, I went to Alpha and Alpha is an awesome brand as well and a little bit different. So I was doing food service at Alpha as well. Alpha Foods makes delicious chicken nuggets, pot pies, tamales, breakfast burritos, all day burritos. They have a whole slew of amazing plant-based products. But the difference with Alpha is that I think their sweet spot in food service is grab and go. So that was really fun for me to learn too, because at Just, I traditionally sold bulk food service. So big 10 pound boxes of plant-based eggs or huge gallons of plant-based mayo. But at Alpha, I was selling a lot of grab and go burritos and pot pies and stuff like that. So grab and go is great for convenience stores, college campuses that have markets on site, which is like literally every college campus cafeterias, you know, they're taking uh, or cafes and coffee shops, they're taking sandwiches and turbo chefing them, they're pre-packaged. 
So from that experience, I was able to learn a whole different customer set and area of food service that I haven't really worked in before. Interesting. All right, cool. And then, so then from Alpha, you went to Simulate, right? Yes. Uh, Simulate, I just touched my first year anniversary with Simulate. So for Simulate, we're very focused. We make chicken only. We do breaded and unbreaded. We have tenders, nuggets, cutlets, unbreaded pieces. And we just launched a really cool chicken breast this year, which we actually launched on our website D2C. So I was able to help with that execution as well. But it tears and tastes and has the texture of chicken actually looks just like a chicken breast too. So that's been really fun to kick off this year. I don't know if you know what that is like for D2C for a, I'm guessing, frozen product. Yeah. But how's that been? I know from, you know, back at Just, when we ran the numbers on that, we're like, this is impossible. Oh my gosh, like the costs are so high to ship. 100%. That's such a good question. So to be clear, for any young startups that are listening, I'm not recommending that you have frozen D2C subscriptions of play-based products on your website. (laughs) From a profit margin standpoint, I don't think it's a strong channel to have exclusively. However, Because Simulate started in 2019 as a D2C brand and then since evolved into retail and food service, we're in about 12,000 points of retail distribution today. We're earlier in food service. We've got chains. We've got college universities. We're stocked at Dot Nationwide. So we're making headway there. But because we started as a D2C brand, we have about 150,000 people on our email list. And that helps us be able to communicate with them. We can do these limited drops and really use it as an opportunity to sample and get product feedback. Um, So yeah, and these limited jobs works really well. And for two breasts, it was $20. So I think from a pricing standpoint, we planned ahead. So makes a lot of sense and probably a lot cheaper than running demos. Totally. (laughs) Which I know you remember well from your Creeker days at at Hampton Creek. Love demos. (laughs) Yeah, me too, actually. I mean, I love doing them, but they are expensive and hard to scale. Yeah. Cool. Well, what an amazing journey. And I mean, just working for so many leaders in the space and getting all these cool experiences. I think one of the things that I love most about this startup CPG world is, I mean, just being at companies that are out there pioneering in their space, figuring it out. You get to have the coolest experiences. If you think about like I worked at Mars Chocolate a long time ago, and I think everybody's job is very predictable and structured. And the person who did your job before you is probably still there and can tell you all about it. But, you know, it feels like at a lot of these companies, you're in the jungle with a machete, just like, all right, I'm going to make this happen, which I think often can lead to really awesome results if you're persistent. So I imagine that your career is just one of the most fun that I can imagine. So let's give everybody the good stuff. Okay. So first question is, all those companies we just went through that you've been at, what didn't go so well? What was, you know, what do you think you were doing well, especially, let's say, on the food service side, if you want to do that exclusively? And then what do you think you should have done better or could have done differently to be more successful? Yeah, that is such a good question. Let's see. I actually wrote down, I didn't really take any notes, but I wrote down notes on this because I thought it was just such a good question. But let's just start with Simulate because that's where I am right now. And of course, it's like the freshest in my mind. So Simulate has come into food service a little bit later than some of the other brands in the space. And we also do chicken. So chicken, as I'm sure any other chicken, plant-based chicken founder knows, it's a little bit saturated. So there are a lot of chicken nuggets. There are a lot of chicken tenders and things like that on the market. So for us, I would say in food service, it was harder for us to get into those bigger chains because someone else is already there. And as much as I would like to say, let's kick out more meat brands and you know, let's get rid of the chicken, chicken tenders. If someone's happy with a Beyond or Impossible and it's on the menu, it's in distribution, 
it can be hard to kick them out, which I'm totally fine with. You know, it takes a lot of brands in the space to to make headway. Um, so that's been hard for us for sure, is like getting into regional and and bigger chains. Um, but for Simulate, because our products are so amazing, I think we've had and our branding, by the way, we're extremely Gen Z focused. We do very well at college university. So we're definitely like making a ton of headway there. And then because our breading system and the spiciness, the pepperiness is so good. We also have done a really good job of getting into like fried chicken chains and being the plant-based option in fried chicken chain. So that's been really cool. Like if you're ever in Ohio and you go to Hot Chicken Takeover, we're the plant-based nugget on menu and it's delicious. You can pick your spice level. They're really good. So yeah, for Simulate, I would say chains have been a little hard to get into. And you know, with that strength that you guys have on Gen Z, are you able to really showcase that when you're going and talking to the CNUs like, are you showing them TikTok videos that people are doing featuring you guys or, you know, you're following or stuff like that? Like, how do you, you know, make sense from the branding and I think the founder story, but how do you show that to differentiate yourself to the CNUs and other food service customers? 100%. So I think if you look at our website, you can see our branding and everything from our packaging to our lifestyle photos, super minimalistic, very Gen Z focused. We also have twice as many followers on TikTok than any of our other competitors probably combined. So we do really well on TikTok too. So we definitely can share those stats. We have a ton of followers on Instagram as well. And we have a cult following for sure. Like people love Simulate. So we definitely well, highlight those numbers. <laughs> all right. So, okay. So should we go move on to one of the other companies then for pluses and minuses or yeah. headwinds and tailwinds? Yeah, for sure. So next I'll go to Alpha Foods. And I think for Alpha, I kind of touched on this earlier, but our forte is in grab and go. So we did really well getting into college campus stores. We have a great partnership. I mean, I'm not with them anymore, but a great partnership with Loop Convenience. It's a convenience store. And then also Fall at Bookstores is a great partner. Fall at Bookstores is basically a campus adjacent bookstore, but they also have food. So they have freezers, they have coolers. It's a great opportunity for branding. And they have thousands of locations. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. So you said they... Like sorry, I interrupted you. 12 yeah, yeah. locations. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Tons of locations. Well, through Vistar, which um, recently got acquired by PFG. So. If you're a brand that has grab and go and you're relatively stocked out of this jar, I think Fallout would be a great operator partner to go to. <laughs> and then on the flip side, you know, at Alpha, I would say it was harder for us to get into those like big volume play bulk opportunities just because in terms of pricing, we weren't necessarily the most affordable. Just thinking like K through 12, military, healthcare, we weren't necessarily the most affordable, not the most expensive, somewhere in the middle. So it was really hard for us to get into those kind of like bulk opportunities. And also from a bulk standpoint, there are so many ingredient and nutritional requirements that take a really long time to navigate. One of the brands I think I've seen out there that does a good job of this is Dr. Prager's. I've seen them in a lot of K-12. They like really scrub their ingredients and make sure they're gluten-free, soy-free, you know, all of that stuff, nutrition-friendly. So yeah, that was, I don't think we had a lot of headway there. And I think that's a challenge for a lot of brands. I think Rebellious also does a good job of really targeting like K through 12 and those places that need those specific ingredient statements. Got it. Okay, cool. And uh, now to our former employer, Hampton Creek slash Just Egg slash Eat Just. Yeah. So at Just, I mean, I was there for so long and I feel like I touched so many different areas of food service. They have amazing products that would pretty much fit into any category of food service but you're still dealing with the same constraints in terms of pricing and just adoption and familiarity and stuff like that. Similar to Simulate, just 
kills it in college university. I was able to get us into a lot of the big tens, most of the Ivy Leagues, some really cool systems. I developed a pricing program for all of the California schools. So the CSUs, the UCs, the Texas system, the Michigan. The interesting thing about CNU is a lot of those uh, regional players will share pricing programs because they want to make it easier to pull products from distribution. So they want everything to be stock. So if you can get into like a handful of California schools, you can much more easily get into the rest of them, if that makes sense. So CNU killed it. We also did really well um, with other non-commercial like healthcare. Healthcare is great for a plant-based egg because not only do some of the nutritional guidelines and menu requirements not allow the patients to have, for example, more than one egg per day, but some states like California mandate a plant-based option. So for us, I think we did CNU, healthcare, and then regional chains, cafes like Pete, Phil's Coffee, those really fun ones. Yes. <laughs> I remember, I think I went with you to some of those pitches. That was a great Yes, time. you did. That was some fun. <laughs> oh, those were some of my first. Gosh, I loved it. I was so lucky to get to go to some of those pitches and tell the consumer insights and data stories. So, well, I guess, you know, speaking of having your pitches and materials ready, I thought it'd be fun to just kind of go through a simulation, no intended. Um, and like, you know, let's say, for example, Jenna starts her own brand and it can be plant-based mayo or whatever you want. And let's say that you already have some retail stuff going and now you're starting to look for your opportunities in food service and you have nothing at this point for the food service channel. You don't have your materials, you don't have your packs, nothing. Like take me through what you're going to do, you know, day one ahead of your launch. And then we'll go into what you're going to do on sales as well once you have all that. Yeah, absolutely. So just prefacing this by kind of like a the most broad overview of food service, just to get everyone thinking about the size of the opportunity. The way that I like to think about food service is it's everywhere you go to eat outside the home from the moment that you're born until the moment you die. So this could be a K-12 cafeteria, a college campus you're eating at, um, when you go out on date night and you know you want to have a beautiful meal. It can be a theme park where you're getting like a corn dog or something. There are just, it can be a stadium, you know, you're getting a hot dog, you're watching the A's game. There are so many different opportunities in food service. Hey, you just evoked so many memories for me with that overview, like getting a little nostalgic. You should do marketing for food service in general. I really should. As a channel. It can honestly be really hard to understand. It took me so long to fully grasp what food service means and the level of complexity, but it's massive. <laughs> the point is not lost on me that I just realized my last meal of life probably will be a food service meal. <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> okay, we'll move on from that board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So that's a, that's a really helpful overview. Yeah. So, so just okay. laying the land as a young brand, I think the most important thing you can do from day one, once you've got that retail foothold, is establishing your product market fit. So just like taking a look at your product, whether that's jar of mayo or a saucer condiment or a center of the plate, plant-based protein, what I would suggest founders do is really look at the product that you have and determine the point of differentiation, right? Like who else is out there on the market with a similar product? How's your product different or better? You need to take a look at pricing and pack size. And there are a lot of different ways you can do this. If you have a broker who has access to Intel, and by Intel, I mean like a dot foods login or a Cisco login, they can run a report and send you all of the competitive Intel. Great. Um, if you're not there yet, you can do some of this research online. There are a lot of brands that sell food service products. 
that readily available to everyone. So if you're a member of like Restaurant Depot, you could even check out Costco. But you can also go to Websteron or what's that? Foodservicedirect.com. That's my favorite one for... I love that one. I think when we were working together at Just, what I I kind of backed into, okay, you can look on foodservicedirect.com to see just tons of different options. They're a reseller. So whatever their price is, you can kind of estimate what the actual brand is selling it for if you assume about 60% of the price that you're seeing on Food Service Direct. So that's my little rule of thumb um, that I love sharing because you know basically that takes into account whoever they're getting it from and the markup that they're putting on top of it. But I mean, in most cases, we found that that was actually pretty accurate. Um, so yeah, like you're saying, a good place to see what's out there and what the pricing looks like, the pack sizes that they're offering, right? Yep, exactly. And you can search by any keyword. You can search like jam or a jelly or a chicken or a plant-based or a vegan. You can just search for any keyword you would use to look up your own product. And that way you can find, you know, the competitive items out there. You can look at their pack size. You know, are they selling like five two-pound bags in bulk? It's just really helpful to gather that intel before you even dabble into food service. And then on top of and that... Typically, sir, yeah. when you're looking at the pack sizes, because like, let's say in retail... I believe mainly in not going against the grain on pack size. Like if you're Agreed. launching an RTD coffee and you go into the store and see most of those are sold in 12 ounce sleek cans, maybe think about doing a 12 ounce sleek can and not try it because that's how consumers, let's say, perceive the set are going to interpret your drink as kind of fitting with their idea of what that is. You know, would you say that's pretty similar in food service? One, because it's kind of what's out there. And two, maybe because like kitchens and, you know, chefs and operators get really used to working with that kind of a pack. Yeah, that's such a good point. I think definitely don't go against the grain unless you have a really compelling reason to, because often those pack sizes have been created that way for a very specific reason in food service. And often that reason will have to do with price per ounce, the cost of the packaging, reducing waste. So let's just say you have a 10 pound case of something. Instead of doing all of that product in one bag, that's a 10 pound bag. In food service, you may want to have smaller two pound bags because your operator, an operator basically means like restaurant or seeing you, not a distributor. The person who is using your product and cooking it um, is a chef or a line cook. They're taking that bag out of the box, they're tearing it open and they're throwing it into the deep fryer or they're putting it in a little container and storing it in the fridge to thaw. They don't want to take all those 10 pounds and risk wasting it. Um, if they have a little two pound bag, they rip it open, they get rid of the two pound bag and everything else stays in the freezer. So just paying attention to those pack sizes and the inner pack size, not just the outer case. It's like, oh, a 10-pound case is not just a 10-pound case. The 10-pound case has inner little bags. So I think just using that as a blueprint is super helpful. And would you recommend that people actually go talk to operators about it also when they're researching the packs? Like, hey, what are you using now? How does it work for you? Just to try to learn a little bit more about it. Did you ever do that? Oh, yeah. I do that all the time. I still do that. Um, if we're working on launching a new pack size, I will talk to my friendly operators like, hey, chef at UC Berkeley, for example, how would you like to use this product and what pack size would you use it in? And typically people know what they want. They'll give you straightforward answers. They may give you a couple of options and they'll tell you why. Um, so if you are able to establish a couple of friendly partners early on, I think that's definitely the way to go. I, yeah, I remember when we were doing visits to some of the big restaurants, like fast food restaurants, especially like if it's not exactly the thing that they're used to working with, they are going to say no because they've got a bunch of employees who are basically like trained to just follow the steps exactly. And it's really critical for them to be efficient. And they're just not even going to bother if it's just not something that's really in their wheelhouse. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we may get to this, you know, from a culinary standpoint later on, but that just reminds me of, you know, not only the pack size, but it's important to have your product. If you're making something that's a plant-based version of another thing, you want to be able to cook that product in the same way that a chef would cook whatever you're trying to replace. So if you, you want to deep fry it for two or three minutes, not like 10, you know, you want to be able to saute it, to bake it, to air fry it, to turbo chef it. So developing those cooking applications and minimizing the change is going to greatly help you succeed in food service. A turbo chef, I think for most people that don't know, is like that little mini oven they have at Starbucks where they warm up the sandwich, right? Yeah, turbo chefs are cool. It's like a crazy hot little mini oven that things just pass through and it gets all nice and crispy. So you could take a fully frozen or dethawed breakfast sandwich and have it ready to go in a couple minutes. Right. Perfect. <laughs> okay. So, uh, and then on a pricing standpoint, let's say probably a lot of people listening are making like a better for you version of something that's out there already. And so let's say they look up and they see what their pricing is. Let's say, you know, you're getting like 10 pounds of something and it's, I don't know, 50 bucks or something. How are you going to think about pricing versus that? Obviously, as a startup, you're not going to have the economies of scale. So your cogs are going to be more expensive and your product. Yeah, you don't have the scale and probably your product's more expensive because of that or for you version. How are you going to think about the pricing, obviously balancing against your margin requirements? Yeah, that's such a good question. I know this part can be really hard too, because you obviously want to and need to protect your margins, but you also want to make sure that people will actually buy your product in food service, because if it's an arm and a leg more expensive than the competitor, it's going to be challenging. So on the one hand, from a marketing standpoint and an ingredient standpoint, you have to shout to the world why your product is so much better and why people need it, why it's going to bring increased foot traffic into your door. Talk about the veto boat, meaning if you go out with a group of people, there's one vegetarian or vegan or gluten-free person in the mix, and you go somewhere and they, the restaurant has zero options, you're probably going to go somewhere else. So it's taking like 10 potential customers to your neighbor's restaurant, for example. So there's yeah. the marketing component for sure. But then in food service, there's like a lot of sneaky things that come into the pricing that you won't necessarily be aware of until it's too late. So I always encourage founders to think about their margin from a future standpoint, right? So you'll have, let's just say your list price. This is a price that you would sell to anyone and you're trying to sell into the restaurant next door. And let's just say your pack is like fifty or $50 per case. As you start to scale in food service, you won't be delivering directly to every single customer. You're going to have to get into distribution, especially when you get into chains. And a lot of chains will have a preferred distributor. So you have to work with Cisco, for example or US Foods or PFG. When you scale even further, you will hopefully get into somewhere like Dot. That's a redistributor that sells to Cisco and US Foods and PFG so that you don't have to sell everyone your pallet minimum, for example. So you want to plan for that as much as you can in advance. So you protect your margin. Um, there are distributor programs. There are operator programs. There are distributor sales rep incentives. You want to offer street programs like BOGOs to help you get you know, into all of the onesie, twosie locations all over the country. So it's tricky to walk that balance, but this can be anything from like 15% to 3 to 5% for a smaller distributor. I'd be happy to list out a couple examples too, because I know it's like overwhelming, but if you have a regional distributor, they're asking for 3 or 5%, national Cisco would be like 9 to 11% just giving a few examples. And what does that mean exactly when they're asking what is that percentage of and what is it to? Yeah. So this can be basically if you sell in to an operator that's big enough and they really want your product and they're willing to force stock it and force stock 
means that they will work with their local distributor, whether that's like Byright or Cisco. They say, I really want this chicken tender. Will you please bring it in for me? My usage is 20 cases per week. So the rep will bring it in for them. Beyond that customer, it's likely going to be closed coded unless you develop a program with that distributor. So if you want to open code the product and open code means like anybody who's looking at the Cisco little portal online can find it and buy it. I run into this all the time where I'm like trying to sell someone my product and it ends up being closed coded. So even though it's there and it's sitting in the warehouse, my operator can't order it. But if you develop a distributor program, which let's just say could be three to 5% that allows you to open code it, it keeps it stocked. You gain access to their regional trade shows, their annual trade show. It basically just gets you a foot in the door. And I think 3 to 5% is super reasonable for most distributors. But once you start getting bigger and bigger, that number goes up. And then you're also dealing with buying groups like Sodexo and Aramark and Compass. They're also going to want a piece of the pie. So basically, so yeah. 3 to 5%, you know, if you're, whatever, your list price is 50 bucks for a case or something. Mm -hmm. And then, so they're going to charge you 3 to 5%. And then they're also going to mark up the product as well, right? That they're delivering. Oh, the Yeah. I forgot about that part. So the other thing about food service is that there's not a lot of pricing clarity. So you can sell something that goes out of your warehouse store and it ships to, let's just say like a Cisco and they sell it to a restaurant or a CNU. Um, you won't necessarily know what they're selling it for. Sometimes your operator can tell you if they're big enough, they've got a great relationship. They're like, no, our program is 5% markup. But that most often won't happen. And they could be marking it up for like 15, 20%. So then when you sell your product and it's $50, your operator down the street is like, hey, I thought you said it was $50. They're actually paying it a lot more for it. That's why you don't want to share pricing necessarily either with operators. Um, okay. So in this scenario, we're talking about, let's say like a good scenario probably is that you're going direct to a distributor and they're selling to this operator who has anchored your product there. So in this scenario, probably there, let's say they market up. 20%. So they're reselling at 60 with your product that was 50 to the operator. And then I think what you're saying is also you might be paying them three to five percent on some kind of a program to have it coded in their system, which is just something you're gonna end up paying to them directly, exactly. or they're gonna take it off their payment to you, like a like a bill back or a rebate back, or yeah. something like that. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. And mm -hmm. mainly that's just like pay to play to work with them. And then that's what would be getting it open coded in theory, something like mm -hmm. that. Okay, which means, Absolutely. and it sounds like differently from retail, I think most of us see the process as like you pitch to a buyer, your specific product, and then they talk about how you're going to get it there, or maybe you're already available in their distribution center. Whereas in food service, it sounds like a benefit of being open coded is it sounds like a lot of the purchasers are in there in the portal, just seeing what's available and looking for options. And so being listed there is really important because I think in retail, I don't feel like people are doing that as much. Like buyers are not just scanning the portal and seeing what they can get and just grabbing it, right? Yeah, no, people do that all the time. Um, that's why you want to make sure your search terms are good to go on all of your portals and make sure you're GDSN compliant, which is a whole other beast. But yeah, so they can search up vegan chicken or you know oat milk or whatever, and your brand will pop up if you're open-coded. And if you're not, then it won't. Okay. And then just on the pricing standpoint, because you were talking about making sure you build in assumptions for all the other stuff, so like, I know there, if you're, let's say it's a uh, Cisco, for example, like if you're just kind of going directly through Cisco to maybe let's say a chain. So they're operating out of a couple different distribution centers, like Cisco and some of the other competitors like them, those can be bigger programs, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. So Cisco is interesting. I love Cisco, by the way. It takes a long time, though, to build to a national program with Cisco. I mean, they're like one of the biggest distributors out there. And it takes a long time to kind of build to that national level. They have Opcos, which is the basically the distribution center for Cisco is called the Opco. They have Opcos all over the country. So what I did at Just and what I think is a totally fair strategy is to go kind of Opco by Opco and build those programs regionally based on the customers that are there. Especially in plant-based, you may not have a ton of product flowing through Cisco in Mississippi, but you might have a ton flowing through in LA, in SF, in Chicago, in Florida, in Texas. So you can absolutely work with those distributors directly and build a local program with them. And unfortunately, it's not like a one-size-fits-all. It could be 9 to 11% for Cisco. It could be 12%. It could be 7%. Or it could be pay-to-play, kind of like a slotting fee. Let's just say like $1,500 per SKU. I've seen all of these scenarios at Cisco specifically. Um, and again, it's all about building those relationships and going there and meeting them in person and doing those trainings and cuttings and establishing your ally. Okay. And then... If you do get one of those deals, but you're not doing too much volume and it's across a couple different regions, that's when you might need to look at someone like Dot, the redistributor, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. That will have some of its own pricing implications. Yeah, I love Dot. They're really easy to work with. They have a great system. They are pretty straightforward in terms of pricing. It's by the pound and it's straightforward. And then they also service like everybody. So they service Cisco and US Foods and PFG, some strategic national accounts, which is really fun. Whenever I find a national account that pulls from Dot, I'm like, yes, because it just makes it super easy. But yeah, Dot can definitely help solve some of those problems. Okay, so I think what we've covered so far is at least a decent overview on the pricing. How do you actually communicate the pricing, right? You need some kind of a price sheet that I know I've worked on with you before. But what do you think are the key elements that you need to cover on the price sheet that you're going to be sending out to people? Yeah, that's such a good question. For food service, it's also a little bit different. Again, you're dealing in kind of like pounds and ounces versus individuals within a case. So like retail, you'd have like 12 jars of something in a case, they'd have the inner and the outer pack. In food service, it's all about pounds and ounces. So you need to include on your price, your price list, your products, the item code, the description. You can have a separate sheet that includes your distributor codes, but I wouldn't put that on the price sheets. And then you need to have your FOB pricing. So if someone has their own trucks and they want to save money and they want to pick up from you, awesome. So you have FOB pricing, delivered pricing. And then as you scale, you can develop kind of like tiered pricing. So if someone meets your minimum, let's just say your minimum for direct is like one pallet, um, you offer an incentive if they can do five pallets or half a truckload. Um, I think for a lot of early companies, that won't necessarily be an issue, but something you can build to. And you can throw your dot price list on there too. And then you'll need like tie high the case dimensions, you know, um, the height, the width, the depth, all that fun stuff, the gross so you, weight, the net weight. <laughs> so on that tiered question, because I think yeah. people understand, hey, like if you're delivering, depending on where your warehouse is, if you have to deliver across the country, that can get very expensive. So yeah. it sounds like you think for early brands, maybe just have one national delivered price. And if it's far, you're just going to eat it. Yeah, unfortunately, if it's far, you're just going to eat it. I mean, it's always great if you're able to focus geographically to start. And let's just say you're a really young brand in food service, you manufacture out of the Bay Area, 
and you just want to ship in California and that's your early food service strategy. You're like, we're going to start with this one region. We're going to gather data points and get some menu mentions. We're going to build chef partnerships and take it from there. You can do that and save money. But you know, if you want to go big right away, then I would just have one national price list delivered FOB. Okay, very good. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast today, it would really help us out if you can leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I am Daniel Scharf. I'm the host and founder of Startup CPG. Please feel free to reach out or add me on LinkedIn. If you're a potential sponsor that would like to appear on the podcast, please email partnerships at startupcpg.com. And reminder to all of you out there, we would love to have you join the community. You can sign up at our website, startupcpg.com, to learn about our webinars, events, and Slack channel. If you enjoyed today's music, you can check out my band. It's the Super Fantastics on Spotify Music. On behalf of the entire Startup CPG team, thank you so much for listening and your support. See you next time.